following sermon was recorded during the Sunday morning gathering of Grace Community Church in Las Cruces, New Mexico. We are a group of Christians that exists to joyfully extol and magnify the true and living God, to faithfully proclaim the Christ-centered word, to build each other up by speaking the truth in love, and to bring the good news of the gospel to our city and world so that the Lamb who was slain may receive the full reward for his sufferings. For more information about us, please visit gcclascruces.com. So friends, we're going to be in Psalm 51 this morning, but I did ask you to turn to 2 Samuel first. 2 Samuel chapter 12. The reason for this is that we're going to paint a little bit of a storyline to help us get into Psalm 51. Psalm 51 is a penitential psalm or a psalm of regret, sorrow, guilt at one's own wrongdoing. It's probably one of the best known of the penitential psalms. There, there's several others through the book of Psalms. Psalm 6, 25, 32, 38, 130, 143. However... Psalm 51 has garnered so much attention over the years and personal pleas, we hear it in music. It's a phrase that is quoted much. Create me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. And besides the general beauty of the psalm, the powerful teaching that can be gained by study, it is probably gained much of this attention because we know what the storyline is that leads to it. There's certain psalms where we don't always understand where some of this is coming from, where he was at at this moment. But in this very moment, we see it. The title of Psalm 51 says, To the choir master, a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. And so based on this, we can know what this psalm comes from, where Psalm 51 comes from. It comes as a result of the conviction that he felt from his interaction with Nathan. And so I want to read that so we can get a good picture of where David was mentally, where he was spiritually, where he was emotionally as he writes this beautiful, glorious psalm. So reading from 2 Samuel chapter 12, verses 1 through 14, hear the word of the Lord. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. He used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, you are the man. 
Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. And I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms, and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. And I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. And he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. For you did, it in, you did it secretly. But I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. And David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put, your sin, put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house. What a difficult passage to read. As I was thinking on this passage and thinking on Psalm 51, I thought about the fact of the time frame, right? And there's a period of time that's obviously elapsed between David's sin, the killing of Uriah, to the moment when Nathan, the prophet, comes to him. And so David, I'm sure, at some point thought to himself, I've gotten away with it. I've sinned. I've committed adultery. I've killed and murdered to hide my sin. I've done evil, and yet he thought for just a brief moment, I've gotten away with it. I can move on with my life, and no one's the wiser. If anything, people think he's doing something kind by taking Uriah's wife to care for her because Uriah died in battle. And here Nathan says, the Lord sees. The Lord has looked upon your sin. He knows what you have done. And he sent me to let you know that you have sinned. And so David cries out to him, right? He says, I have sinned against the Lord. He acknowledges that he has indeed sinned. And Nathan gives him an an assurance that he won't die, but much tragedy will come to him. And so this is what begins our story here. We're going to be looking at Psalm 51 for the next three weeks. We're going to break it down into three sections. And as we do so, I hope that you get to see a little bit of where the mindset of a truly repentant man is. We're going to see kind of over the next three weeks, 
three areas. Today we're going to be looking at repentance. Next week we'll dive into renewal. And then finally we'll close out with restoration. Back into service to the Lord. The beauty of the psalm here that we'll find as we study it is that as David's writing it, and he's writing this personal plea for the Lord's forgiveness, it's something that's so general for us. It's interesting because he never quite says, you know my sin of adultery. You know my sin of murder. But yet he has provided a, a Passage here, the Lord has given us in His Word in Psalm 51 something that we can all pray and we can plug in our own sins to. We can cry out, Have mercy on me, O God, because I know my sin. You know what I've done, as David did before the Lord. Strikes directly into the heart of the hearer provides a means of approaching the Father in prayer. So as we work through this over the next three weeks, I invite you to walk alongside David in some capacity. Take the time to truly think through sin. Seek repentance, seek renewal, seek restoration. While many of us will, Lord willing, not quite do some of the things that David did, though we'll talk a little bit about that, how eerily similar we are, right? But we have all sinned. We have all fallen short of the glory of God. And so we can then echo the pleas for forgiveness for our vast and wicked sins, we can find the renewal that we desperately desire in the Lord Jesus Christ. We might be restored to Him, to the Father, and that we can echo the psalmist in saying, then I will teach transgressors your ways. So, our passage for this morning, that was a Nice long intro into our passage for this morning. If you'll turn with me to Psalm 51 now. Psalm 51. Our passage this morning is going to be verses 1 through 6. 1 through 6. And as we do so, we're going to split it up into kind of three scenes or three points this morning. Three sections, you might say. Verses 1 and 2, the presence of sin. Verses 3 and 4, the pain of sin. And verses 5 and 6, the profoundness of sin. So we have the presence of sin, the pain of sin, and the profoundness of sin. So first, let us start with the presence of sin, verses 1 and 2. And the psalmist writes, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. 
According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. What is mercy? What is mercy? It's this compassion, forgiveness shown towards someone who is, whom it is without their ability to find it themselves. It's this sense where someone is, that has the power to punish doesn't do it. They have the power to harm, but they withhold it. They don't give what the person deserves. David knows what he deserves. He knows what the proper answer is. He knows that back in the law, it is clear that he is to be executed. Leviticus 20 and verse 10, If a man commits adultery with his wife, with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall be surely put to death. He knows what he deserves, and Nathan has already told him, you will not die. And so he looks and he says, have mercy on me, O God. Seeks compassion. Seeks forgiveness. But notice, he doesn't cry out to Bathsheba, this woman that he has taken advantage of. Doesn't cry out to Uriah's family. Doesn't even cry out to the people that he was called to lead. All these people that he has wronged in these situations that he's done. And no, he cries out and he says, oh God. He realizes the only person, the only being that can provide him true mercy from his sins is the Lord. So much of our culture today and especially in the unbelieving world teaches that the only thing that we really need to do is be made right with one another. There's no sense of a vertical issue. We look out and we think, well, just be reconciled to that person. Seek their forgiveness. It's not a bad pursuit, right? As believers, we're called to do that. Matthew 18 tells us to do that. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will, uh, will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Love covers a multitude of sins. There's these multiple passages that talk about the reality of needing to be reconciled with one another. But it doesn't deal with a much larger issue. Believers and unbelievers alike will seek mercy from the wronged party. They'll seek a sense of compassion and care from the person that they have wronged. However, unlike the unbeliever, the believer, the person who has faith, they see that the true mercy only comes from God. And sin puts a block between God and man. There's no right to divine blessing, divine relationship while unrepentant sin stands. We must all acknowledge that sin comes from the Lord. Or sorry, mercy comes from the Lord for our sins. This is not something that we must seek from one another alone, but from the God who can truly provide that mercy. The God who in his 
mercy has allowed us to breathe this very moment another breath. The God who told Nathan to tell David, you shall not surely die. But he would have breath in his lungs that he could then look back to God and say, Lord, have mercy for my sin. He continues on. He says, according to your steadfast love, he appeals to the very nature of who God is. Exodus 34 and 6, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. David repeats the very characteristics of who God is. He says, Lord, remember you said that you were merciful. You said that you were filled with steadfast love. That you were slow to anger and gracious. That you were faithful. What can we learn from that, huh? So frequently we're apt to think about God in the ways we want him to be. We think about a God who will just readily forgive because, well, we want to be forgiven. We think about a God who will just do whatever we ask. We think think of him as some sort of jolly Santa Claus, ready to just give the gift of repentance and faith and give the gift of forgiveness and give really whatever you want, whatever you're needing in this very moment. So many people that claim to be believers treat God like he is some magic ATM. They put their card in, they enter their Christian code, and they get whatever they need. But David doesn't do that. He doesn't look to a God and say, God, because I need forgiveness, I want you to be forgiving. He doesn't look to God and say, God, because I'm really hurting right now, I need you to make me feel better. No, he doesn't do that. He appeals to the very nature of who God says he is. This is what we should be doing to ourselves. May we seek to know the very character of who God is. May we not look at God is some magical ATM, but rather the God that has been revealed in the scriptures. May we know his character and then call upon that character to be how we shape our view of him. When we seek forgiveness, may we join with David in being able to say, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, because that's who you said you were. Not because that's what I need, not that's because that's what I want you to be, but because that's what you said you were. You said you were filled with steadfast love. I need your steadfast love. May what God has said about himself shape our very communication with him. So David begins, he calls out on his steadfast love. He says, because you have said that you are abounding in love. I appeal to that, that very reality of who you say you are. 
And he continues by saying, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Abundance, this word of being beyond, superseding the sins of the man, God's mercies are. Can we not all think of the innumerable sins of our own lives? Beyond what we can even contemplate, beyond what we can even understand. I don't know how many of you have ever heard of evangelism explosion, but it came out of Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church, and it was a way of being able to bring the gospel to people, to evangelize. And one of the things that they do in there that's very powerful, I think, and I, and I really do appreciate this, is they ask people the classic questions, right? They ask, do you think you'd go to heaven or hell if you died today? You know, why do you think that? Stuff like that. And then they really want them to consider sin. And so they ask the question, let's just take a small number. You sin once a day. For the believer, we can all kind of chuckle at that and say, you got to be kidding me, once a day? Man, you're doing really great if it's only once a day. May we get there, right? May the Lord give us that sanctification. But even at just once a day, every year that's 365 sins piling up before us. Every two years, you're passing 700. And you double it, and it's 1,400. And you double it again, and it's 2,800. And by the end of your life, you're 30, 40, 50,000 sins down. The, nu- the numerous sins in our lives are so large. And yet, David looks upon God and he says, According to your abundant mercy. A mercy that can supersede 40,000, 50,000 sins. For many of us, we can say far more. Far, far more. So even in the numerous sins, even in the darkness that David finds himself, he knows that God is able to forgive him. A God who is abundant in mercy, echoing back to Exodus 34 again. According to his abundant mercy and his steadfast love, that God can blot out the transgressions of David and of you and of me. That term blot out is to wipe away, to clear completely, to destroy We'd see it used in a variety of places, both to destroy someone. He will blot them out from the earth. He will remove them completely. It's almost like they're forgotten. Isaiah 43, 25, I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my sake. And I will remember your sins no more. He will forget them. Acts 3.19, repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. That they might be removed completely. That you might be cleansed from them. And then David, please, he says, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sins. 
David uses a term here, a, a verb that would normally be used for a soiled garment. Something that needed to be laundered. It's as if he's saying, I'm this soiled rag of a man. Filthy. Disgusting to look upon. Shouldn't even want to be touched. It's so gross. He says, I need to be washed and washed and washed until the stains are all removed. Until I'm clean again. He's not only acknowledging that he is a sinner, but he's acknowledging that his iniquity, his sinfulness is in the very fabric of who he is. It's interwoven into the very fabric of his being. And he expands more on the depth of his sin, his need for cleansing later on in our text. But here he just says, wash me, cleanse me, remove the iniquity, this filth that's upon me, get it out. Like a stinky, dirty cloth that unless washed over, And over again, I cannot be made usable. He knows the guilt that he has. He knows that this guilt is a stain upon him. And that unless he is washed fully, that he is cleansed fully, he's unfit for God's presence. He's unfit for God's people. He's unfit for the very call upon his life. He must be washed. He must be, he must be cleansed. And now we can turn our attention to our next section, verses 3 and 4, the pain of sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgments. As we have seen, David is calling to mind a very specific time as he writes this. He cries out to God and says, I know my transgressions. It's not that he ever really forgot them, right? It's not that he ever really had no clue that he had sinned. He's just calling to now acknowledge that sin. He knows the sins that have brought him to his knees, crushed under the weight of his wrongdoing, The sad reality for many of us is that we either don't know, though, the ways in which we have sinned, we have failed to acknowledge them. Justin and I were talking yesterday on our drive back from El Paso, and a question was asked in reference to how do we avoid hypocrisy, this sin one of the things that I mentioned was knowing what sin is. So much of our world teaches that that's not really a sin if it makes you feel okay. It's not really a sin if the world, if no one else is really hurt by it, right? It's what many people teach and believe. That's, it's a common belief in our culture today. If no one's hurt, who cares? And so the reality is, is we need to know what sin is. And how do we do that? How do we know what sin is? Well, there's a couple of things. One, there's obviously this innate conscience within our hearts that tells us what is wrong. 
before even knowing that murder is wrong, we don't murder. Why do we walk around not murdering each other? Because we know it's wrong. There's something about the fact of taking someone else's life that's wrong. Sadly, that even is going out the door. People getting freedom after killing someone. Babies dying in the womb. So there's a sense in which we know what is wrong. And then the Lord in his kindness and generosity provided his very word to us. So that we can know what is wrong. So that we can know what is sin. So we don't have to look far. We don't have to go searching in the Amazon hoping that somewhere there's a scroll that was written by somebody of old that will tell us what is right and what is wrong. The Lord gave us his word and he says, read it. Here it is. Here's all that you need to know today to live according to the law, to know what is true, what is right and what is wrong, what is just and what is evil, what is righteous and what is sin. So we need to know what sin is, that we can echo David in saying, I know my transgressions, O Lord. You know that I have sinned, and indeed he does. But the question is, do you? Have you taken time to account for your sins, to recall them before the Lord, seeking forgiveness? This is not to cause you to freeze, paralyzed under the reality of your sin, but rather a continuous call to acknowledge sin, to confess sin, to forsake sin, to truly put it to death. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. David continues by saying, my sin is ever before me. His sin has cast the sense of a shadow upon him seems to hide the very face of God. His sin has caused him to say that everywhere he looks and everything he does is tainted now by his sin. The reality is, is that while sin is not dealt with, while true repentance is not found, the weight of sin does cast a shadow that cannot be cleared. I'm sure many of you over time have had a, a relationship, a boyfriend or a girlfriend. And when you break up badly and you go back and you, you're driving around town and you look out and you see, oh man, that was the restaurant we used to go to. And it kind of hurts a little bit, right? And then you drive around the next spot and, oh, there's the mall we used to shop at together. Oh, and that's our friend's house that we used to hang out. Oh, there's the place we met. It seems to cast a shadow upon you. And the reality is, is that with time, those things change, right? New memories are built and one day, Lord willing, you're married and you have great, great memories and all those things are gone. But unlike a relationship that ended badly, sin won't do that for you. Sin will continue to cast a shadow upon you. It'll be ever before your face hiding any sense of joy until it's been addressed, until it's been 
brought forward before the Lord and for and seeking his forgiveness. David continues, he says, against you, you only have I sinned. We see the progression of David's thoughts here in the text, right? He cries for mercy. He acknowledges his sin. And now he sees that God is the one to judge him for it. It's like a man going into court. When he's brought in there, the first thing he does is he cries for mercy. Please, don't just execute me. Let me please just talk for just a moment before you. And the judge gives him a moment. And he says, I have sinned. I have done wrong in your sight. And now he says, you are the one to judge. You are the one to judge. But have mercy, right? Have mercy. He cries out against God, and God only have I sinned. But how, you say? Didn't David sin against Bathsheba? She was a married woman. Did he not sin against Uriah? Did he not sin against his fellow Israelites? Well, yes, he did. However, ultimately, and with the greatest impact, he sinned against God. He has rebelled against God. He has openly put an attack against God's glory. The reality is, friends, that he could get right with all of these people. He could go to Bathsheba and he could say, I am so sorry. What can I do to make it up to you? He could go to Uriah's family and say, let me give you the kingdom. Everything that I have. He could go to his people and he can say, do what you must with me. Kick me out. But unless he seeks forgiveness from the Father, he still would go to hell. He would still be under the wrath of God waiting to be poured out upon him because God is the one to judge. Thankfully, David knew his place with the Lord, right? He knew that he was God's chosen one, his anointed one. He knew that God ultimately would save him, could save him. But he must cry out against you and you only have I sinned. David is acknowledging that the ultimate sin was against the perfect, sinless lawmaker. The one who has given that moral law, this righteous, just law. Ultimately, David hurt a lot of people. Thousands. He did some terrible things, but the sin was a sin because of what God had said about it. Because it was an affront against God's glory. It was an affront against God's moral, righteous standing. And he says, and he's done what is evil in your sight. There's a twofold meaning here that we can draw out, and I just want to do that briefly. There's both a physical, literal sense, and there's a morality sense. David did indeed do something that was deemed evil by God. As we talked about Leviticus 20, right? If a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. He's done something that has been viewed as evil in the sight of God's eyes. 
So he says, I've done what is evil in your sight. I've done what you have deemed to be wrong. So there's a physical, literal sense where he has gone against God's word. But David also knew that God is omniscient. It's all-knowing. It's as if God was looking upon David and he's seeing and he's, David committed sin after sin after sin. Many have said because of Habakkuk 1.13, you who are of pure eyes then see evil, then to see evil, believe that God does not see our wrongs in some capacity. It's a foolish thought that the Lord, the God who is to judge us for our wrongdoing would be the one to not know it. As if in our, in our own sinfulness, we would go before him and he'd say, well, what brought you here today? I don't know. I'm, 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 I'm good, I think. I haven't done anything wrong. No, friends, the Lord sees all. The case is, the reality is that not, God cannot look upon sin, but rather Habakkuk is coming before the Lord and asking questions. That very passage, Habakkuk is saying, Lord, you see the evil in the world. You're perfect. How can you watch as it continues on? Do you not look upon it? Because I'm seeing it everywhere, and it seems like you're allowing them to flourish, the evil ones. So it's not to say that God does not see our sin, but rather that God sees everything. And hence his ability to give the righteous judgment at the end. To punish the wicked. Which all of us are. But fortunately, right, the story doesn't end there. We'll talk about that in just a little bit. And he says, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. What is David doing here? In his confession of sin, David is confirming that God's commands and his judgments are correct. Though David failed to live according to God's law, according to his judgments and his commands, David says, Lord, you are right. So much of Christian culture today almost looks at God and says, you can't be right because I want to do this. We look back to all of the moral law in Leviticus and Deuteronomy and we say, there's absolutely no way that God would actually punish that. God's love. Didn't you read the New Testament? That God of the Old Testament, that was for the Jews. We're Christians. We don't need to worry about that that much. He's not a God that's just in that kind of sense. He, he supports being gay. He supports transitioning genders. He supports all of these things. You know what? He supports you having an abortion because your life will be easier. No, friends, we need to be like David. We need to be like David and say, your judgments are right. They are just. He says, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. 
by confessing sin, he's not only revealing his own inward wickedness and to relieve the great burden of his sin, but he's also confirming that God is right. Instead of looking at God and saying, God, was it really a big deal that I I slept with Bathsheba? Was it really a big deal that I committed adultery? Lord, come on, it's okay. No, he says, Lord, your judgments are right. I am wrong. He looks upon his own life and he says, there's nothing that I do or say that is right outside of what you have already told me. May we all have that judgment in our own eyes. May we all say, there's nothing that I can do or that I can think that is right outside of what the Lord has already revealed to be true and right and correct and just. Well, friends, we've seen this presence of sin. We've seen the pain of sin. And now let us turn our attention to verses 5 and 6, the profoundness of sin. And reading here, he says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in, my, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. He says, Look upon. Behold, see. He calls attention to this. And he says, I was brought forth in iniquity. We've been working through the doctrines of grace. Talk about total depravity, right? He says, I was brought forth in iniquity. David says that there's not been a time that he has not known sin. There's not a time where he can say, I was sinless at that point. No, he says, right before there, he puts it right out there. He says, behold, from my very birth, I was brought forth a sinner. There was no chance of me doing this on my own. There was no opportunity where I would walk into holiness because I was just so great. Sin was within. Sin has been a very part of his nature. David says, in a way, sin is who I am. He says, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Now let us be clear, David is not blaming his mother for his sinfulness here. He's not saying, because my mom was a sinner, then now I'm a sinner. He's saying, no, I I have my own sin. Sin nature is what has been given since the very beginning with Adam and Eve. And I can't blame my mom for my sin now. I can't look to her and say, well, mom, if you would have done better... I wouldn't have done all those things. No, shame on him if he would. No, he says, I'm responsible. My mother conceived me in sin. She was sinful. I'm sinful. My children are sinful. Sinfulness is inherent to man. There's not a point where David was not. Much of our world tries to reestablish the heresy of Pelagius. It's known as Pelagianism. It's a little history lesson here for heresies. 
My apologies, I still get a little cough after this illness. It is a belief that original sin did not taint man and that through God's grace and human action, man can achieve perfection. He could live the perfect sinless life, no, no need. Now granted, Pelagius would probably say, well, the chances are probably small, but there's a possibility. This was condemned by the early church. This was condemned by men like Augustine. And so David is saying, no, there was no chance. I didn't have a chance to not sin. I am sin. I have sinned. Sin has just taken over me, over my life. And it's a constant battle. It's a constant battle against it to do according to God's word. And he closes out this section by saying, Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being. The Lord desires truth within us. He desires both that we are honest with our very nature, right? He, he desires that we're honest with where we are, but also that his saving grace is able to work within us, to place that truth of his word deep in our hearts, that it might flow forth from us then. That truth might be found in our very actions, our very thoughts, our very words. And he closes out this brief section here by saying, And you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. David knows that God does not desire to see sin in the heart of man, but rather his wisdom. And so David says, you teach me wisdom where there is folly, righteousness where there is sin. He goes into this secret heart, the inner man, the true man, and he gives wisdom where there was none for those that seek it. So as we come to a close for today, I just want to briefly discuss what we've seen here. And then we can talk a little bit about what we're going to see coming forward. We've seen today repentance. David has been brought his sin before his very eyes by Nathan, the prophet. How wild it is that as Nathan uh, approaches him and he gives him the story, David says, kill him. He says, he should die for what he's done. Shame on him. <laughs> How quick we are to do the same, right? We see our own sin in someone else and we say, Whew, shame on them. Our pride gets us. This belief that we are better than another gets us. And so what we've seen today is David being called to repent, and he has. He says, have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. He's addressed his sin. He says, for I know my transgressions. My sin is ever before me. The weight of it is shining down upon me. It's, it's heavy and I can feel it. And he says, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. 
And then he says, he acknowledges the profoundness of his sin. Even in his repentance, he says, Lord, I know who I really am. And I still need forgiveness. He says, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth and the inward being. And you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. David has cried out loud to the Lord, acknowledging that he is, like Jonathan Edwards would say, a a sinner in the hands of an angry God. And the reality is, is that David can do literally nothing to but cast his sins. There's, there's no work that he can do. He can never outdo what he has done. And neither can we. And so all he can do is cast his sins before the Lord and seek his forgiveness, seek his mercy. All he can do is look to his very covenant God and know that God will hear him. The reality being that pardon for sin cannot be found in any works, right, that we can do. His only option is to seek him and say, against you and you only have I sinned. He can only look upon the abundant mercy of God, upon his steadfast love. He is hopeless before the perfect, holy, righteous, just God. And so he cries out, have mercy on me. David, the man after God's own heart, as he's described, the anointed one of God, his king, the one that brought Israel and Judah back together, this man that has been chosen by God for a very specific purpose, sinful and broken, can only look to God and seek his forgiveness. So what about you? What about me? Here we are gathered this morning 3,000 almost years later. What are we to do? What is our option? We must be cleansed from sins too. We, We just talked briefly about the numbers and it's so ginormous that we can't even think on it. What are we to do, friends? When we look at David and we think to ourselves, we're not like him, but... We are, right? We've committed adultery. We've murdered. Jesus says, the the incarnate God says in Matthew 5, you've heard it said of those of old, you shall not murder, but whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be held to judgment. He'll be liable to judgment. You've also heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that Everyone who looks after a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. We have all sinned against the Most High God. As much as we'd like to pretend that we're not like David, we are David. Especially as believers, we are David. We're chosen ones of God. And here we are, sinning against him. We have all sinned against the Most High God, the one who is perfect in all his ways. We are deserving of punishment. We must fall before before this perfect, holy, omniscient, 
omnipresent God and just lay our sins before him. And like David, we must rely on faith alone as our only means of forgiveness. The difference, though, for us, we know God's plan of redemption. We're on this side of the cross. We know that the Father sent his Son into the world, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, the incarnate God. He lived this perfect, sinless life. He lived a life that neither you nor I can ever live. Unlike what Pelagius said, none of us can ever do that. He died on a cross, took on God's wrath in our place. It was poured out upon him. What we deserve is to be on that cross with God's wrath just flowing upon us for all eternity. And he died. He died the death that we deserve. He was buried. But because the wages of sin is death and he was without sin, death could not hold him. No, he came back. He was raised on the third day. He's seated at the right hand of the Father, reigning with power and glory. The scriptures are clear. There's no doubt about this. We're not looking for some deep, profound meaning, though this is a very profound reality. The scriptures are clear that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Jesus proclaimed that time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. The gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, the Savior. Friends, there's only one means of salvation. And that means is found in the Lord Jesus Christ. We are saved by faith in him alone. So let us look at David as an example Acknowledge our own sinfulness as we cry out for mercy and forgiveness and cleansing that is found in Jesus Christ. We are not grasping at thin air. We're not screaming out to the universe. Please have mercy on me, universe. No. We are crying out to a Savior. He has called us to repentance and faith. And so we are not crying out to the universe, but rather we're crying out to Christ. Christ, have mercy on me, a sinner. He has made a means that we might be reconciled to God. Where this block that has been placed between us and God can now be removed. Can be made right with him. And so as we close today, and look forward to continuing our study of Psalm 51, where we'll see this renewal and restoration that comes by seeking the forgiveness of God. I invite you to take inventory of your own sin, as I intend to. Pray back these first six verses of Psalm 51 to the Lord. Seek his face, knowing that he is a God abounding in steadfast love and mercy. Join me in prayer as we close.